Turn your great idea into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website all by yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com forward slash MU for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 21, Episode 24. Coming up on the show, we've got the Sons of Biame, the Orang Baby Snatchers, and the Wisdom of the Nebosaurs. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. I'm not so sure it's wisdom, those Nebosaurs. You can't trust them. You know, they're a little bit shifty, really? shady characters. Really? Yeah, I don't think you can trust them at all. You're saying it's some kind of Nebosaurus trick? <laughs> they control the financial system. They do. They're dangerous. You're just going to stay right away from them. We'll be hearing from one of the Nebosaurs later and what went on on their home planet. But Ben... This is our last show! Last show of the season. Oh, well, and also our last show in Sydney. It is our last show in Sydney. The studio is a complete mess <laughs> right now. Like a, it's like a tsunami literally has come through here. Wow, there's no furniture, so we've just been sitting on the floor Japanese-style <laughs> doing our research. There's no desks, so that we've, all our books are gone, everything's packed up. We're out of here! That's it. We're gone. Getting out of Sydney. But it's actually really good news because you and I have decided after almost 10 years in Sydney, well, it is 10 years in Sydney, Mm. that it's time to get the hell out. Love Sydney. Beautiful city. Come and visit it whenever you get a chance. But love it. Overpopulated I and love, expensive. I and love the 400,000 new people that come every year. Yeah, and the uh, million-dollar average median house price. And, oh, it's brilliant. Oh, yeah, it's just it's so fantastic. But my favourite thing is when I want to travel 10 kilometres on the weekend mm. and it takes nearly two hours. <laughs> that's, that's mm, I love that. Yeah, yeah. And look, I think it's fine when you're when you're young and you might have just gotten married, but once you've got kids and everything and you've got to start driving them to sport and stuff and... Well, we just thought, you know, we're, we've been doing this show for a long time and it's going really well and we don't need to be in this city. Mm-hmm. We could do it from really anywhere in the world. So we've decided to move to a northern state here in Australia, to Queensland. We're going to the Sunshine Coast, a beautiful place. And we've... Despite the fact you don't like sand. But apart from that, you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, since this is such a big move, we've been working on this behind the scenes for months Months. now, trying to plan everything. We're moving, obviously, both our families. Our homes, the office. and, and, And the business. We're building a brand new studio. All fingers and toes crossed. It'll be ready by next week when we get into our new warehouse. We're building it in a shipping container. Yeah. And it sounds crappy when you say it, like... But it looks amazing. It looks amazing. We will put some photos up on the Facebook page and maybe tweet something out once we've done it. So, yeah, it's going to go very nicely. Yeah, they look beautiful. There's a guy up there who just happens to be running a business right where we're moving, and that's his whole thing. He builds recording studios in shipping containers, so it's all custom-made. Everyone he builds is better than the last one. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, looking forward to getting in there. And it's just going to be a massive change for us to get out of the city. Uh, Oh, this city's killing me. Like, honestly, it's just... As I said, I love Sydney, but it has just become so, uh, you know, we do all these stories on the show, Ben, about, you know, noise and, you know, these things. Being in nature. Being in nature. There's just almost no nature. Uh, I live next to a train line. I've got constant cars driving past my place. It's been like this for 10 years. And there comes a point where you go, you know what, what's, what's the point? Why push yourself so hard when you can actually be in a location where you've got 
Fresh air, plenty of trees, plenty of sporting activities. That's what I want. Yeah, so can't wait. Looking forward to it. We're, we're, as soon as we finish this recording, we're basically packing everything up that's left here, jumping in our cars and driving, driving. and going. Yep. Yeah. How's your move? How's your packing going? Have you got everything packed? Oh, God, no. Again, at home, it looks like a tsunami's been through there. Yeah. It's both. It's basically the whole place has been ripped apart. So when we were booking everything... Uh, I paid extra to have people come and pack all my stuff up for me. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not doing that. I don't so want people to go through my stuff. Now you're regretting it, aren't I you? I really regret it. So I, I'm having a team of little Japanese ladies come. <laughs> Marie Kondo to show up. individually wrap every single item. Like every knife and fork will be wrapped in like tatami paper or something. <laughs> Does this buck join? <laughs> yeah. No, so, it doesn't. Throw it out. So it's kind of breezy for me. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. I've just kind of thrown everything into boxes and already just shove it into the truck. Yeah. Uh, that will work. Although moving our library has been the most difficult thing. Oh, it really... Ha- I didn't realise how big our library was, but it makes sense thousands, after so long. Yes. Thousands of books have to be moved, and I don't think they're going to fit in our containers for shipping. So we'll we're just going to have to send them one by one. Yes. But anyway. hopefully our schedule shouldn't be affected too much. And of course, this is the last episode of the season. So we're taking a week-long break as well, yep. which won't be a break. We're just going to be. It's going to be a break for you guys. So when are we coming back, Ben? We're back for the start of season 20 of Plus mm-hmm. on July the 2nd. And we're back for the start of the season 22 for Emmy on July the 5th. Excellent. So, yeah, we're just taking a week off as usual and hopefully everything will be ready. If the first recording is in uh, our basement somewhere yep. and it sounds really weird, that's because our studio hasn't been fully completed. But we expect it to be ready on it time. It should be, yes. But this show is going to be a little bit different because recently you and I, Ben, went into the far reaches of Canton and went, <laughs> well, when I say that, we went, we went to Burwood, Burwood, which is a very uh, Asian area. And uh, we went over there. And when we went in, we uh, went to this, basically what appeared to be a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. So I, I saw an email uh, a couple of months ago advertising the world exclusive from Stephen and Evan Strong. And of course, Stephen and Evan Strong, we've featured on the show before. They've, they've come on as guests. Uh, they're great guys. And they've done incredible research on the true history of Aboriginal people in Australia. And also debunking the out-of-Africa theory. They, yeah, they claim that out-of-Africa is completely done. It's not true at all that humans came out of Africa and the science behind that is, is essentially widely recognised by academics, but it's not something that's understood by you know the mainstream. You don't get taught this stuff in schools. They're really good at uh, getting that information across. And they came out that they had this world exclusive of a new skull. Now, this was being organised by UFO New South Wales. Uh, I'll just read you some of their email. They said, Stephen and Evan have been researching some very unusual skulls from around Australia. They coined these skulls the no-forehead beings. So obviously not related to David Wilcock in any way. <laughs> uh, due, due to the lack of a, a forehead in the skulls, the skulls also have an elongated head and very large eye sockets. Having had a reconstruction made, they are now ready to have it displayed publicly. World exclusive! This is the first time the reconstructed skull will be on display, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, Stephen and Evan, uh, they've co-authored five books together Uh Constructing a New World Map was one. Mary Magdalene's Dreaming, which we've never uh, covered. I haven't heard of that one. But we have gone into deeply forgotten origin out of Australia, and the new one is Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Um, Evan is the the son, the younger guy, he does most of the research by the sounds of it. And Stephen, uh, his father, is 
now a, re- a retired school teacher, but he's a really good presenter, really good talker, and he's really up on stage doing the delivery side of things. Well, he's also out of the sites as well, if he can get to them, if he's allowed into these sites, because he does claim that he's being blocked by government authorities and you know other powers that be from getting into these sites. But when he can, he's actually very much on the ground getting yeah. out there. Yeah, and uh, after I you know, saw that email, I thought we've got to go, we booked in to, to go and see this event. I was reading a little bit more information from the Strongs. They said the skulls we are researching throughout Australia are utterly unique. Even the government officials have stopped fighting our research as they know with the full reconstruction of a skull complete, this is no less than a new species. They claim they are actively helping, but we will see. So there's a bit of a conspiracy side to this that the evil Australian government is trying to cover up this. And that's a huge claim, that there's a new species of hominid about to be revealed. Well, not only that, he's claiming that the government authorities have threatened him with arrest if he persists in releasing this information. Yeah, so we went on June the 1st. The event uh, was back then, but we've decided... Well, let me just say that after about 10 minutes in, you and I realised, oh, we've got to hang on to this for the last show (laughs) of the season. Yes. So this is going to be a different show. We're just going to riff off what we essentially saw back then. Uh, We've got all these notes on... Pages and pages of notes. Rejig our memory. And uh, for our Plus extension, what's coming up in Plus? Oh, this is great. So in our Plus extension, when we were recently talking about the uh, Berberlings, those strange uh, supernatural creatures... I wanted to look into more details about them because I thought, okay, well, if you've got this, you know, small isolated island off the coast of Malaysia, there must be other, you know, pieces of folklore or other, you know, researchers that might have come across something similar. And it turns out that Borneo and Indonesia and, uh, well, obviously Borneo is part of Indonesia, but Borneo and those regions in the Malay Peninsula have a huge wealth of stories about these similar types of supernatural creatures. And it almost fits into this parallel of being almost like Indochina uh, fairy folklore, which yeah, parallels... Well, they the were very folklore. similar to vampires, the Berberlangs. Yes, very similar, such as you know the use of garlic with vampires. With the Berberlangs, it was the use of lime juice. You yeah. sprinkle stuff with lime juice to reveal it. Well, I found many more stories of where, uh, essentially, you know the stories of the changelings, about how the fae folk will come in and try and snatch a baby. Yeah. Exact same thing was happening, allegedly, in Indonesia uh-huh. and these similar locations where these creatures were showing up and swapping out babies. And there's all these cases of where people have come back after treading into their realm, which leads to this kind of uh, interdimensional kind of idea. Uh, And then I'm going to go into some strange reports of people that have had encounters with imaginary friends. And then I'm going to finish up the end of the Plus show with a story about a very, very strange story uh, about a plane crash that happened uh, that resulted in a mass explosion of hauntings after the crash, things like, you know, people showing up at people's doorsteps looking for their luggage, but then <laughs> what? but then disappearing because they're actually victims of the oh. aircraft crash. So oh, wow. very, very dark, unusual stuff. That's all coming up in our Plus extension at oh, the end of the show. Looking forward to that. Well, let's go into this event, Stephen and Evan Strong. So uh, as you said earlier, it was at perhaps one of Sydney's most prestigious suburbs, uh, Burwoo, <laughs> a.k.a. Beirutwood. Pretty much. Okay, yeah, but yeah. And uh, you immediately feel enriched by diversity when you're there. Like, you just feel... What diversity? That's not, I was like the only... <laughs> you and I are the only white guys there. No, that's diversity. <laughs> when, when, yeah, you, when you're the only white person, that's diversity, Aaron. Uh, there's nothing like getting yelled at in Arabic 
while simultaneously being pushed from behind by an old Chinese lady. <laughs> that is just that, the beauty of this uh, wonderful place. That does sum up how it feels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we walked very briskly through the third world gauntlet to our destination. Well, this is the thing. Like, don't get me <laughs> it's also a pretty, I don't know, it just it feels like it's a scummy area. I feel bad. <laughs> how dare you say like, that? I know that I live on the north shore of Sydney, but... It's just a scummy, run-down area. Not the people. I'm just saying the area itself. It's just like, what? am I going to get mugged? Well, we, all we knew is that it was at Club Burwood. We'd never been to Club Burwood. We're just like, this club should at least give us some sanctuary from the uh, wonderful, enriching place of, of Burwood. Uh, so we arrive, and as you said, it's literally a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's not even a good Chinese restaurant. It just It looks like the... The shittiest food oh, court, awful. yes, uh, low, <laughs> low rent, disgusting place. Like they maybe clean it once every six months, and there's no like fresh cooked food. It's just uh, no, it's you know, like, food in buckets. Yeah, pretty much. And you just go up and fill your plate from the buckets, uh, and that's Club Burwood. And the the talk was being given in a room above this really shitty Chinese restaurant. The smell was wafting up through. <laughs> Yeah, and, and then I sit down because there's no seats. Like this is the thing: the place was actually packed. There were, you know, plenty of people attending this presentation. Yeah, but I sit down next to a woman who was stuffing bourbons and cokes, <laughs> stinks of cigarettes, <laughs> and is like, "I'll oh, just hang on to that for me while well, she goes outside for a cigarette." And it turns out to be someone who used to be very high up in Mufon. Oh yeah, I was like, she oh. was the Mufon director of Australia for thirty years or something, and she's <laughs> she just smashing a smashing back these bourbons. By the end, she just she's smashing. <laughs> bourbons and hoeing into this cheesecake next to Aaron. It was so funny. And even while the presenters, while this, while Stephen Strong's talking, she didn't care. She's just like, oh yeah, that's right, honey. I know all about this. <laughs> so anyway, we get there, uh, Stephen. And let me just say that UFO New South Wales, they put on great Events. Oh, they always do. Uh, yeah, Jamie's brilliant. The Jamie from Moomason runs wife. it. They're, they're, they're really fantastic. They do. They do an excellent job. Uh, we make we make fun of you know the cheap location and everything, but they they have to do that. That's because part of the fun. There's a small group and there's there's no money involved. They do it because no. they love it. Yeah, and they do a really good job. Uh, so uh, Stephen, of course, uh, came on the stage and he started with this announcement that a new species has been found in Australia that will rewrite history. Full stop. He claimed that the government is now supporting them uh, because, as I said earlier, they realised that Stephen and Evan had done a reconstruction on the skull. So there's now no doubt that it was some kind of new species. So then he starts going into how out of Africa is absolutely wrong. And this is what I love about these guys. They're very good at taking the latest in scientific developments, the, the latest in DNA and archaeological research, and showing how our common understanding, our mainstream understanding of human history and evolution is dead wrong. It is wrong, yeah. And out of Africa is finished. It's it's wrong. And it's not claims that they're making. Like I said, they just take the latest cutting-edge research, the, uh, the latest DNA work, uh, the latest archaeological work, and they demonstrate what it actually means. So... I wanted to go into this in a little bit more detail because, again, I think this is where they're really strong, these guys. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, their, their latest book, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, The Out of Australia Theory, I think we've touched on the earlier ones which were building this idea. 
But this one really focuses on a lot of the science behind uh, why out of Africa is wrong and why they believe it's actually out of Australia. So this is something that's really important to point out. So is it that mainstream science has now accepted that out of Africa is wrong yes. and they have no answers for it whatsoever? But the difference where Evan and Stephen step in is that they think that they have an answer. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. So uh, from the book, they wrote that an article appeared in the New York Times in September the 22nd, 2012. It was written by Nicholas Wade. And he stated that a lock of hair collected by a British anthropologist a century ago has yielded the first genome of an Australian Aborigine. Now, the strong say in the simplest terms, with the genomes of all four races now fully recorded, the numbers are now crunched some basic observations can now be made and the timeline of human history can be reshuffled. So the two youngest races, according to this genome work, are European and Asian races. Now, the timing of those races is around 40,000 years old. That's our current understanding. Uh, but when you go further back from that, they point out that it starts to get awkward. So our previous understanding of Native Australians is that they separated from their African kin some 75,000 years ago. And once they left their home base of Africa, they spent a lot of time in transit. It was something like 25,000 years. They did something for 25,000 years and then finally settled in Australia. So one of the first things I question in the book is, what did they do for 25,000 years? Yeah, they have to settle somewhere. Wait, what? Were they just on a boat? <laughs> Where, what were they doing? So this is already a problem. Again, the timeline is that uh, the uh, they came, these original people came to Australia uh, 50,000 years ago. Now, the reason this is a problem is because there's already at least... 11 sites that are confirmed, that have been studied, that have solid archaeological work done on them, again, by mainstream archaeologists, that reveal this, this date can't be true. It has to be older. So, for example, uh, Lake Mango, wherever that is in Australia, they've found cremated bones that are 60,000 years old. So it's already older than 50,000 years. Yes, it's already pushing it uh, back. They've found a complete skeleton there that's 65,000 years old. You can go to Point Ritchie, where they've found shell middens, which are early tools used. They're 80,000 years old. You can go to Lake George, where they've found fire stick farming. That's uh, 120,000 years old. And it just keeps going back older and older and older. The oldest known uh, occupied location we have in Australia is from the Great Barrier Reef in Queensland, where they have evidence of fire stick farming, this very primitive way of, of farming. 185,000 years old, that site. Wow. So that goes far beyond what the mainstream accepted idea is of how long the Aboriginal Australians have been here. It goes back before there was even meant to be people leaving Africa. Mm. So it doesn't make sense. You know, obviously this has to be incorrect, this understanding. Now, they say when you look at the mtDNA, there's virtually nothing linking Aboriginal Australians to Africans. And he goes on to quote... Uh, researcher Keith Windshuttle, who states that 50 years of blood genetic research has failed to provide any clue to Australian Aboriginal origins. He says, may I state here and now that our extensive blood grouping survey over three decades have produced no genetic evidence that the Negro ever entered the Pacific. There's no evidence at all of that. 
That was also backed up. I remember in the talk, because I know you're reading from the book there, but I remember in the talk, he also mentioned the Y chromosome mapping. And obviously, you don't get much information out of out of mm. Y chromosomes. But there was a Russian study called the Walkthrough. And what this did was compare uh, 400 African um, haplotides. And they didn't get a single, I mean, regardless of what that is, they didn't get a single match between Africa and Europe. But the central point was Australia. Yeah. So it indicated from that data that everything came out of Australia in yeah. itself. I think I've actually got that highlighted here. The work was compiled by Anatoly Kleosov. Yes, that's it. And Igor Rojanansky from the Academy of DNA Genealogy. In It's actually in, in America. It was in Newton, USA. Uh, their research determined that a more plausible interpretation might have been that both current Africans and non-Africans descended separately from a more common ancestor, thus forming a proverbial fork. A region where this downstream ancestor arose would not necessarily be Africa. In fact, it was never proven that he lived in Africa. So the strong say that these, the, this latest research, these academics, the scientists, they're, they're actually saying the same thing that they're saying, that they're claiming. Nothing has ever been proven. And as the research and techniques used in genetics have become more refined, Africa's prominence has actually eroded. It's becoming less and less likely that out of Africa is the true origin of human beings. It's fascinating, though, as to whether or not the mainstream, especially uh, you know, media outlets, are willing to entertain this because uh, Stephen did point out that there was a mitochondrial study between these tribes as well that revealed the similar types of information that Africa really is degrading in regards to being the point of origin for Homo sapiens sapiens. But he said that there's a journalist, there's a magazine here, a science magazine called Cosmos magazine, and uh, I must say, it's extremely uh, stuffy-nosed and sceptical from whenever I've read it. Yeah. But one of the authors was, oh, sorry, one of the journalists was uh, Jackie Hayes. And she wrote an article about this. And she was actually very level-headed and just discussing it. She got fired. Now, whether or not, now Stephen's claiming that she got fired because of writing the article, but there could be other reasons why she got fired. Yeah, it's a little bit However, misleading for him to say that because we have no idea why. Did she even get fired? Maybe she, they just didn't have a position for it. We don't, we don't that's know the any thing. details. Yeah, exactly. But she stopped, the point is, she stopped working for them soon after that article was published, which suggests that, well, was there a link there? Is there something going on? Yeah, they also mention, you know, speaking of the Y chromosome work, there's the data obtained from this international project conducted by Family Tree DNA, which is based in Texas and Arizona. And the Strongs point out that what they found was that, quote, not one non-African participant out of more than 400 individuals of the project tested positive to any of the 13 African subclades of haplogroup A. So mm -hmm. they just, again, as you mentioned earlier from the other study, there was nothing linking these non-Africans to... African uh, history, like African movement out of Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago. Now, I don't recall him going into too much detail about it, but he did mention the Mount Toba eruption. And he was talking about the fact that around 75,000 years ago, the reason why we might have uh, this different understanding as to where life sprung up is because there was a massive uh, catastrophe that essentially wiped the world back to a population of around 5,000 people with two population centres, one being in Europe and one being in South Africa. And that's where we're getting this idea that it started from Africa and has moved through. Did he go into any more detail in the book about that calamity? It's mentioned. I mean, it's obviously not their research. We know that Mount Toba happened and it's considered the most destructive now, you know, world disaster in the last two million years. Well, there was a meter of ash in Greenland, apparently. Yeah, I mean, everywhere in the world was basically covered in ash, apart from, as you said, 
I, di- I didn't know Europe, parts of Europe weren't yeah, affected. Yeah, he said Europe and South Africa were the only two regions that were unaffected, you, which is strange. Are you sure you wrote that down? Because it was um, Australia. Australia was the region that wasn't affected. Oh, I apologise. Maybe it was Australia. And that's, Maybe, yeah, that's sorry, why, you're saying Europe was wiped out. My, that, my apologies. Yeah, that's why they think that out of Australia kind of fits into it, yes. this history of the Mount Tober eruption because either, you know, there were already people in Australia during the eruption and they survived. And if even if they had a developed culture and technology, that survived as well. Mm, I'm sorry, Whereas, I have the sound of a fork and cheesecake in my ears. So. <laughs> I, I know all this, honey. <laughs> Can you get me another bourbon? <laughs> she was quite lovely. <laughs> so Mount Tober is an issue because... This eruption was 75,000 years ago. As you said, the global population reduced to 10,000 people or something, the researchers claim. Mm. And, yeah, the only place not affected is Australia. So we're supposed to believe that Africa destroyed, you know, nearly wiped out by this Mount Toba eruption. They then just decide to leave. Like when everything kind of calms down and life begins to be normal again, instead of spreading into the areas that are now unpopulated. And fertile, obviously, from all that ash and everything else. Instead of moving north and they decide to go to Australia. Yeah, crossing a vast ocean. Doesn't doesn't make sense. Doesn't really make sense. So they have an issue with that. But really, I mean, I I think the genetic, the the Y chromosome stuff is really interesting. Like if you look at... That's the most compelling. Again, if you look at these latest studies that have been done where they're not finding uh, a solitary African chromosome uh, abroad in these non-African study samples, the researchers are essentially saying that Adam can't be in Africa, you know, the Adam and Eve. Adam cannot be found in Africa. It just doesn't fit the data. The original genetic genetic coding, they say, should be saturated with African mtDNA and Y chromosomes, but that's just simply not the case. So... Moving on, they say the, gen- the genetic nail in the coffin is this uh, extensive genetic research that uh, was just completed in maybe mid-2015 in, in the States. Uh, the scientist is David Reich. He's the senior author of the paper and a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School. And he openly admitted that the results they got were incredibly surprising. He had no reason to doubt the current theories that account for migration into America. And the current theory is basically one racial group about 15,000 years ago started to populate uh, America. And he said, look, I've been a proponent that most Native Americans today extend from a single pulse of expansion south of the ice sheets. And that's wrong, he said. We missed something very important in the original data. So he starts talking about the Tupi-speaking Suri people, the Karitana people, the Gi-speaking Savante people of the Amazon. They all have a genetic ancestor more closely related to Indigenous Australians than to any other population in the world. That's what their data showed. The comparison was extensive and included the genomes of people from about 200 non-American populations. They conceded that they, quote, don't know the order, the time, the separation or the geographical patterns and that a more diverse set of founding populations of the Americas than previously accepted should be considered. So even our understanding of people coming into the Americas is... It's wrong. It's wrong. It needs to be totally rethought. And they're finding connections to Aboriginal Australians in their DNA. It's... 
kind of weird. That's the most compelling part, though, because it's the DNA which is providing and you know, it's yielding these results. And that's what's important. But the problem is we just don't know where to go from here, I yeah. think. And again, the locations that they're finding connections to from these indigenous tribes in North America and South America are Australians, New Guineans, and Andaman Island people. Where's that? Off well, the coast of Australia? Okay, first of all, uh, Papua New Guinea was part of Australia only up to 8,000 years ago. Like There was a bridge connecting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can just consider that the same uh, homogenous racial group. And right? that's what we were taught in school as well, by the way, that there was a land bridge there, and that's yeah. where a lot of the Australian Aboriginals came from, right. down through that land bridge. So they're not separate people. That's just one people. Uh, and Andaman Islands is interesting because that's where Sentinel Island is. Oh, you know the yeah, the, the, the natives that will just kill anyone that tries to contact them, no matter what their purpose is, no matter how well, many Bibles it, they're holding in their canoe. Yeah, you will get killed. Well, wasn't a journalist killed only? Oh no, actually, it was a missionary. Yeah, that's was, what I'm yeah, saying. Right? Yeah, only <laughs> recently, like last yeah, year or yeah, so. Yeah, he went there to convert them. Yeah, that, <laughs> he, that Bible's not going to help. He had the latest King James, and he thought, "I'm going to convert these savages." And they got throw a, spears at helicopters. <laughs> he got a bunch of arrows in the chest. They're genetically connected as well, and they're very closely related how to did, Native Australians. How did they get genetic samples? Uh, I don't know. Should have darted Well, them. the Andaman Islands has other people of the same Right, group. I see. Yep, okay. So that makes sense. Um, it's just interesting that that's connected. So this info was already suspected by archaeologists, though. They, they kind of knew this. It's like the DNA was just... The, the icing on the cake, right? Yeah. So Walter Neves, he uh, researched 55 skulls found in Brazil. He said, this discovery is striking in light of interpretations of the morphology of some early Native American skeletons, which some authors suggested have affinities to Australasian groups. So the very first Native mm. Americans were basically Australian Aboriginals, according to the archaeology. So... This is the thing. No matter which way you look at this, the age of Homo sapiens sapiens just keeps getting pushed back further and further and further. They quote the work of uh, Dr. Virginia Steen McIntyre. She's identified six different locations in South America where human occupation has occurred between 33,000 years ago and 1.3 million years ago. How can humanity go back that far? You remember when we got taught this that Homo sapiens sapiens were basically forked off 200,000 years ago. Exactly. Yes. Like that That's was that was the law. That was it. Yeah, and that <laughs> and that was really drummed into you as well. That was well understood. You know, this is con- conclusively shown. We've got the evidence for it. No, nope, sorry. You're wrong. 1.3 million years. And why should it stop there? Uh, so one site, Lake uh, Valsequillo, uh, it's got they say that this area in particular and the work they've done on what they've found there has completely destroyed careers. It's polarized opinions. Friendships have been torn up. Like Funding's been cancelled. It is just really controversial. So this site, it clearly showed, and it's, I can't remember what country it's in, but it's in South America. Maybe it's Brazil. They clearly showed that Homo sapiens sapiens were in America at least 250,000 years ago from this site. So at least 50,000 years beyond what we've been told. Yeah, so there's more from Chris Stringer as well. This guy's uh, really interesting because he just doesn't kind of package what he's found in some politically correct way. He just says, look, this is the data and we need to rethink everything. There was a recent announcement from him at the fifth annual meeting of the European Society of Human Evolution 
uh, and it's shaken the hominid family tree to its very core, say the Strongs, there is a universally accepted pivotal separation between all hominids and homo sapiens from a common ancestor of ours you know, a, a long time ago. And essentially what this means is that the sapiens offshoot continues down a different path uh, for us as it did with Neanderthals, as it did with Denisovans, the Red Deer Cave people, whoever they are, and other strands of humans. So humanity or Homo sapiens sapiens are the ones that became the dominant species. That's right. And there were all these different splits. And the archaeological evidence we had suggested this occurred about 180 to 200,000 years ago. So that's where that date comes from. That's why we used to get taught it was 200,000 years ago that modern humans uh-huh. fought, kind Which of forked sense. off, right? Yeah. And that's been the law. And Africa was the perfect fit for the archaeological evidence that we have, but not anymore. So DNA extracted from fossils in Spain uh, showing an age of 300,000 to 400,000 years old, and the hominid was a relative to Neanderthals. So what this showed was that no less than 300,000 years ago, this so-called parting of the ways of sapiens hadn't happened. So that 200,000 date doesn't stick anymore. It just doesn't stick. The date of separation must be older. And this is the minimum estimate, like 300,000 years ago. Now we've put it, pushed it back 100K already. Do they have a theory on just how far back it goes? I mean, I know we've gone back as far as 1.3 million years. Are they suggesting they could go back even further? Well, again, they, you can only guess unless mm. you find a fossil. Yeah. You can only guess. So the presence of that one semi-Neanderthal in Spain, they say it automatically disqualifies the credentials of the accepted genesis of modern humanity in Africa beginning 200,000 years ago. As I said, that theory is dead. Uh, He said, if the timing is unclear, logically the place where modern humans first appeared is no less uncertain and warrants a new debate. Stringer went on to say that That means that the ancestors of modern humans also had to split earlier than expected from the population that gave rise to Neanderthals and Denisovans, who were more closely related to each other than they were to modern humans. This would mean that the ancestors of humans were already wandering down a solitary path apart from other archaic humans on the planet 100,000 to 400,000 years earlier than expected. So to answer your question, yeah, we can at least push it back now half a million years that Homo sapiens sapiens were a separate species. No wonder this is so controversial, though. So, yeah, this is a huge shakeup. And Stringer, to his credit, this guy essentially conceded that the agreed historical narrative, this out-of-Africa theory from 200,000 years ago, is now proven to be wrong. And he said, quote, there's no alternative but to engage in a new debate about when and where the branches belong. So this is where the Strongs come in and say, hey, guys, hey, hey, we've got the answer. It was never out of Africa. It is, in fact, out of Australia. I wonder why you are playing that today. <laughs> now I understand. Thanks, Australian Aboriginals, for being the progenitors of everything, according to the Strongs. So... This is, the, this is where it gets interesting because they put forward this question. If the Australian native Aboriginal people 
Well, he calls them original Australians. Yeah, he calls them... No, he actually calls them original people. And original I think it's people. just confusing to say that. So okay, I'm just going we'll go to say Australian Aboriginals. If they were the, the cedars of essentially the entire genetics of modern humans, if they really are our ultimate ancestors as Homo sapiens sapiens, and they went out and spread across the earth seeding their DNA, what else did they seed? What else did they spread across the world? And the strong say everything, absolutely everything. And this is where what they present gets a little bit hard to believe. So they claim that not only Homo sapiens sapiens genes were spread by Aboriginal Australians, but culture, art, sailing, astronomy, spirituality, democracy, gender equality, hieroglyphics, dance, music, surgery, philosophy, language, technology, the internet, Twitter, YouTube, all created by Aboriginal Australians. Boom. (laughs) Well, not the last four, but that's their point. Everything was spread forth by this ancient advanced culture of Aboriginal Australians. Well, if they are the progenitors of humanity, well, then of course, yes, then everything else would come with them. So I can see why he's making that, that claim, but backing it up... What's, how does he back that up? Okay, good question. So this is where we get to the new skulls, these skulls that he's found. And, of course, these have been discovered in Australia. And they suggest that a new species was in our country alongside these native Australians. And we're going to find out what the capabilities of that undiscovered species were after the break. You're listening to Mysterious Universe. Stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. They make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products and more. Squarespace is the tool for you. I think for some people, Ben, when they think about creating a website, because in the past it's just been so difficult and there's so many things that you have to do, people feel a little bit overwhelmed. But with Squarespace, it's this all-in-one platform that basically takes care of everything for you. All you have to do is just pick from those fantastic designs. Well, you get to drag and drop. You get all the fun stuff. Exactly. You don't have to worry about coding in the back end or worrying about anything else. And they've got this powerful e-commerce functionality. So basically, if you want to sell anything, you can do it through Squarespace. I'll help you set up the website. Everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box, and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. You don't have to think about it. Get your own custom domain through them as well. you got that 24-7 award-winning customer support. That's why Squarespace is so popular and so powerful. It empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms. You can turn your great ideas into something real with Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com MU for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com MU, offer code MU. 
AMC Network Shudder is a premium video streaming service serving fans with the best selection of horror and thrillers. With the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrillers and dangerous entertainment, Shudder is like the Netflix for horror. Stream great thrillers, horror and suspense for $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year on all your favourite devices like iPhone, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV and Android devices. There are new spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly and you'll have unlimited access to stream them all ad-free. Shudder has an unparalleled collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics and blockbuster hits. What's on there at the moment, Ben? You mentioned a movie that I should see. Oh, Predestination. 20, What's that? 2015, uh, Ethan Hawke. It's got lots of time travel and paradoxes and a oh. M. Night Shyamalan-style twist at the end. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And they've got good stuff on here. Like They've got um, a, a large selection of old and new, which yeah, is see, really good. That's the thing. The new stuff is great, but there's just something about those really old horror films. I mean, the special effects are bad and tacky, but it just seems to add to the just mm. the weirdness and the suspense just of those movies. Heaps of spaghetti sauce blood. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, really <laughs> that's, that's what you want. Look, to try Shutter for free for 30 days, go to Shutter.com and make sure you use the promo code UNIVERSE. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com. Use the promo code UNIVERSE and you'll get Shutter for 30 days for free. Mysterious Universe, talking about Stephen and Evan Strong's recent world-exclusive reveal of a reconstructed skull, possibly of a new species on planet Earth. Their website is ForgottenOrigin.com. Of course, we'll link to everything they do in the show notes at MysteriousUniverse.org. And essentially, we just finished on their claim that Australian, uh, Native Australian Aboriginal people had essentially seeded the entire world's culture. They are the progenitor race not just in terms of DNA, but culture. So getting back to the notes from the talk, this is where I'll, I'll leave their book behind. And again, there'll be a link in the show notes if you want to check it out for yourself. But essentially, humans like us were walking around uh, in Europe 700,000 years ago. Apparently, this is new information on the academic scene. The whole story of human origins has completely changed in academia in the last 10 years, but it hasn't penetrated mainstream knowledge. Again, if you ask anyone on the street, where did humans evolve from? They'll say Africa, yep. without a doubt. Yep. Uh, he has more quotes from Springer. Uh, and again, these aren't entirely accurate because I'm just going from my notes here. But apparently he said there's only one race in the world that has Denisovan DNA, and that's Aboriginals. But Denisovans never came to Australia. They were just strictly based in Europe. So how do Native Australians have their DNA? So obviously there has to be a well, previous species. The only way it would make sense is if Native Australians were before them. Right, of course, yeah. So he claims new research has shown that Neanderthals were much more advanced than we assumed as well. 
Uh, he claims they had settlements with plumbing and piped hot water. That's right. Yes, <laughs> I love that. The Neanderthals just had apartments, and you know. Well, this is the thing. Like, <laughs> if you were going to do the Twenty Three and Me study, for example, uh, it will tell you how much uh, Neanderthal DNA you have. And people go, oh, Neanderthals, you're a dumbass. <laughs> no, actually, if you have a higher level of, of Neanderthal DNA, you're actually more likely to be more intelligent. Yeah, this is something that they kept on drumming into the audience in their presentation, is that a larger cranial capacity was something that featured with the human ancestors. Let's talk about that. And they claim second. that means higher intelligence and higher culture. That's the thing. So you and I walked out of there because, okay, so basically uh, the way that we got to this point about talking about these skulls, or this particular skull, is that uh, Stephen said about a year ago he was just given this skull. And at first he thought it was this bound skull. But then he realized that, no, this thing was slightly different because it had very wide eyes. In fact, the eyes were 46% bigger than humans. On top of that, the skull capacity, like the capacity of where the brain would sit, was significantly larger. Now, he kind of basically inferred that because it had a larger capacity, that it had a significantly higher intelligence. But we know that that's not the case. Well, not about that, but we know that just because your brain is larger, it doesn't mean that you're smarter. It's actually because of an increase in efficiency that the human mind, or the sorry, not the mind, the brain, the actual brain mass, has become smaller yeah. because those pathways and everything has become more efficient. And, and this is the thing. This is where their presentations, where they're quoting academics, are great. But then you start to realise that they make some connections and overstate some things that are very misleading. For example, you know, we just mentioned that they put up this information that Neanderthals had uh, running water and plumbing and yeah, hot water, uh, heating hot water. I, I I looked this up, and I, I'm sure they're referencing a 2015 Smithsonian article where researchers from the Catalan Institute of Human Paleoecology uh, were investigating this 60,000 year old cave in Barcelona, and essentially the piping hot plumbing was a hole in the cave that they heated with a fire. Oh, that, so I'm thinking copper pipes and no. It was literally a hole in the ground. <laughs> so where was the water? The piping water and the Roman pipes and the Neanderthals having showers. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I'm imagining. It's bullshit. Oh. It's just, it's not true. Okay. so that's... They've just taken this article that says, let me read it for you. Uh, archaeologists uncovered what they think is a hole located near the hearths that could have been used to heat water. Oh, so it's not piping hot water. <laughs> it's literally a hole near a fire. That's it. The uh, remains also show evidence of sleeping areas, trash disposal areas. Oh, so they had a place in the cave where they put all their shit. I just get this. That's not- I don't know why, but when he said that, I just got this image of like Neanderthal home <laughs> flippers and them going in and like renovating <laughs> homes and, you know, putting in new tiles. Yeah. And- so we're going to take out this wall and Grug, you're going to put a kitchen in there. <laughs> and Gonk Gonk, you're going to install the shower. And over here is where we'll fling our shit. I don't shit. know why that was in my mind. What's really happening is they're like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. actually they had stone tools uh they had this area for slaughtering animals so at the very least they didn't shit where they slept that's it they had a cave where they did different things in different sections and from that article he says in the presentation that they had plumbing and piped hot water no 
So, but we were being defied that a number of things are not entirely <laughs> accurate throughout the day. So you started mentioning the skulls, and this is actually really interesting. When he first found this skull, I had in my notes that he thought it must have been bound. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, he, it was a bound skull. He didn't really take it seriously because it must have maybe an infant so flat, an infant that had their head wrapped. Um, and by the way, we'll have a photo of this skull in the show notes if you want to take a look. And there's multiple recreation, multiple, multiple skulls as well. So. The thing that makes the skull really weird, I don't know if you just mentioned this, but the eye sockets are huge. Yes, yeah, they're 46% bigger. And this means, according to the Strongs, it must have been a nocturnal creature. It must have been a nocturnal being. Uh, And also, you would have gone blind if you were out in normal daylight. Yeah, and they are really huge. I even... I looked up all the other hominid skulls. There's a place that sells recreations of them, and I wanted to compare the eye socket size to, you know, like uh, what's the uh, Homopithecus and uh, Australopithecus and all those all those ancient Homohabilis. Yeah, and it's huge. Like the eye sockets are they are massive, massive compared to those ancient skulls. Uh, Also, what's weird is the front two teeth look like they've been pulled out. And Stephen mentioned that this was apparently still an Aboriginal burial ceremony when the first white settlers arrived in Australia. When Cook arrived. So there's some kind of cultural link between Australians and this new species. And also the shape is odd, like the, the slant of the skull doesn't really make sense. Now, it gets really strange when he pointed out that they found a humerus bone. It was 45 centimetres long. Humans are around 32. Yeah, and the average for a six-foot-tall man is having a, like, 30-centimetre-long humerus. Yeah. So it's got massive arms that hang around its ankles. It would essentially be the longest arms on the planet. But he also said, and this is something that I find to be very difficult to believe, that the wrist, the diameter of the wrist, would have been one inch so their arms. So that's two point five. That's two point five centimeters, Ben. So you and I have got about seven or eight inch wrists. This would be. That's how small it would be. <laughs> Could you imagine? Because I was thinking about it this morning as I was it's going over my notes. I'm like, hang on, one inch wrist. So this thing. Oh, I'm sorry, not diameter. Around. Yeah. yeah. So that's around. Like that's so tiny. Like a dime. Yes. Oh, even smaller. So this thing would have had giant, like, night possum eyes. Yes, like and one, one cent, actually, it'd be like a penny, <laughs> penny wrists. <laughs> and its arms would literally be Grover arms from Sesame Street. Yes. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> He's yep. got Grover arms. <laughs> yep. So what the hell is this thing? Oh, and you didn't point out, though, he also said that the skull itself, it didn't have suture marks in the back of the skull. So whoever gave birth to it pushed it out completely. So was it, that ba- that skull or one of the other skulls? It was that skull, wasn't it? It didn't have okay. any sutures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the problem... Oh. So the, the head shape wouldn't have changed over time. It's basically like, that's well, what you get when, when a you baby's born, the plates kind of go over each other when they go through the birth canal. That's a good thing, by the way. And then as the child grows up and ages, they kind of yeah. uh, fuse together. So almost you could say it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to naturally give birth to this being. Well, for human beings. Mm, interesting. And you can see where we're heading. So there was a second skull. Uh and it's buried with this first weird skull. And the second skull is from a completely different species. So why is there a burial site? This is like finding a burial mound with modern humans and Neanderthals buried together. Yeah, well, species that should be hundreds of thousands of years separate. Yeah, and, and obviously not. completely different in culture, but they're they're living together. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, the skull had 
Oh, no, sutures. Yeah, I mentioned you mentioned that. Uh, the teeth were completely different to ours as well on this skull. The roots oh, I apologize. I must have mixed it up. I must have mixed it up. Uh, so. Who knows? We're taking... This is notes from two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the bottom, and you just hinted at this, the, the bottom line is that it's not human. Yeah. The skull is not human. Now, there's a new skull. There was a, a third skull found, and this is interesting because Stephen got a call to go and check out this new skull. It was uh, He won't reveal where, where it was or who the person was. He's trying to keep their privacy, but essentially he's called out to to go and see this skull, and he doesn't tell anyone that he's going to inspect it. Was this the same skull that had the teeth? So with the teeth, when they looked at it, the teeth flared outwards instead of inwards. So when you've got a molar, when it comes out, the, t- the root is supposed to, you know, move inwards. I can't remember. In a stra- but that one, he showed an image of the teeth flaring out, yet again suggesting that this is not a homo sapiens. Whatever sapiens. it was, they needed braces because their face, oh, was, yeah. face would be a mess. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was, well. Uh, so this new skull, he off he goes. He doesn't, again, he doesn't tell anyone that he's going to inspect this. And while he's driving hours and hours to get to the location where they've found this specimen, he gets a call from one of his mysterious elders. And Stephen Strong makes a reference to the elders in this kind of, in this way that they're almost like grand wizards that know all. These yes. elders that he's in contact well, with. Well, there's it's beyond that, Ben. I think that he actually does directly suggest that they have some type of uh, psychic abilities. He doesn't go so far as to say the word psychic, but that's what I kept on picking well, up. Well, it's almost like just saying that they're elder Australian Aboriginals implies that they already have grand wisdom beyond everyone else. Yes. Which I find just, I've mentioned this before. It's like with the uh, uh, American Indians. Yeah, it's so dumb. Yeah. Like, it's, I don't know who this guy is. He's an elder. Okay, he's old. So what? He could How- just be some old Aboriginal guy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I've got power. So what if he's an elder? But anyway, this elder calls him on his phone and he says, you're going to see a skull, aren't you, mate? Very and good interpretation, Ben. Very well done. Stephen's like, uh, how do you know that, grand elder? I haven't told anyone this information. And he's, he admits like, yeah, I'm going to go see these skulls. And the elder says over the phone that these skulls he's going to see are the sons of Biame. Now, Biame is a creator god in ancient Aboriginal history, in ancient Aboriginal culture. Now, it's spelt B-I-A-M-E. And Aaron, I want you to do a Google image search for Biame right now. And tell me if you notice anything interesting about this ancient cave painting of Biame. Fascinating. So there's two things that really stick out. One, Massive eyes. Yes. And two, very long arms. The arms are ridiculously long. And what looks like a large penis. The penis is huge. <laughs> it's a tripod being Biame. Uh, but that matches everything he's shown that appears with this new skull they've found. It And this elder has just called out of the blue and said, this is the sun. These are the sons of Biame you found, these skulls. I'll put this photograph in the show notes so you can see it for yourself. It's fascinating. It's kind of uncanny. That it's it matches an Australian a native Australian god being. So again, make sure you take a look at this, well, or just Google image search Biame B I A M E. But the thing is, very naturally, this suggests that whoever painted this saw it. Well, at least they knew the description. Yes, 
So uh, I, I just did a bit of research on Biame. One of the great Guri ancestral beings of the creation period in Aboriginal uh, law. But then they find a skull that matches the dimensions and yeah. femur. During the creation period, he moved across the land, helping develop the landscape. So he's doing terraforming and he's giving life and law to man. So it's like he's uh, Quetzalcoatl. It's like he's one of the very similar story. progenitor gods. Uh, and when his journey was complete, Biame returned to the sky, but appears at different times to remind the Guri peoples of the law. Now, I didn't pull that from Stephen and Evan Strong's website. That is the actual uh, Native Australian creation myth that's been passed down for thousands of years, mm-hmm. that he returned to the stars, that he came and cr- helped create mankind and all life and terraform the earth. So and again, though, it's kind of another star person story. Yeah. And again, look how big his damn eyes are. Yeah, it matches with what the skull looks like. So more information on the skulls. Uh, Apparently the one that the weird Biame skull was buried with had a knob on the back that Neanderthals have. So from that information, they figured out that this Biame sun god alien being was buried with a Neanderthal. So it's not even... It's not even a homo (laughs) sapiens. That doesn't even make sense. All of this doesn't make sense. But this is where he started then going into the skull capacities. And this is the point he goes, well, these skull capacities are 1600 CC. Today we're 1300 CC. We've been dumbed down by something. And I was like, well, but dumbed down yeah. by what? And also the the son of Biame skull with the huge eyes and the really long arms. The, ever, the bone structure is incredibly thick. Like if you, if Mike Tyson went up and punched this guy in the head, yep. he would break his hand. Um, and he also mentioned that each skull was painted with okra paint on the inside. So it's like it had been treated with a traditional Australian cultural burial. So what the hell is going on? And of course, their answer is, it's an alien. It's not a, it's not a new human being. It's an alien skull, this Biame skull. Uh, the other weird thing, and if you look at the photo in the show notes, look at the nose... Uh, and where the actual nose starts on the skull. It almost reaches the skull's, I guess you could yeah, say, peak. Th- third eye position in between the two eyebrows, Yes, which is incredibly high. Like, yes. Look at any ancient hominid skull, even look at a monkey skull, and you don't see the nose kind of opening there go so high on the face of the skull. It is totally, well, it's totally al- different to anything we would see. Yeah, it's almost to the top of the forehead. Yeah. Which is just really unusual. So that in itself is absolutely bizarre. So at this point, because I'm just going through my notes here and I'm just looking back. Now, I recall this this particular incident grabbed me, but Stephen said, look, this has been the story of this skull is that he arrived back in Sydney and for a few weeks he started feeling okay. really unwell. Yeah, so this is, is, where, this, this is where we're about to do a 180 turn and go to somewhere fun. <laughs> <laughs> so refresh my memory because obviously he got the skull. Yeah, so remember he was called out to go and just look at the skull. And yep. as soon as he saw it, he knew that, okay, this is something incredible. I've got to gather up the, the, all this and, and take it back with me to Sydney. He said it was a huge drive because he obviously wasn't going to fly with it. It was hours and hours and hours in the car. And can I point out as well that by this point, I began to notice that he'd started referring to himself as us black fellas and you white fellas. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he's done this before. And I, I, I can't recall. He's clearly that. not... He's clearly not well, Aboriginal. We shouldn't we shouldn't say that because I mean his skin color. He may have Aboriginal DNA that or ancestry. So what? 
What is it? One percent? Look, yeah. Look, I mean, he's that's, he's that's like me he's saying pretty white. That's like me saying I have four percent Neanderthal. I'm a Neanderthal. They're my people. Yeah, exactly. I've got six percent Neanderthal. Right, and but I'm not Neanderthal. The reason it stood out to us is because I can't remember him doing this before. Like all of a sudden, through this talk, he's referring to himself as a as black fella. A black fella. Yes, yeah. <laughs> dude. What are you doing? Which is a term that you can only use if you are a black fella. You can't you can't say I'm a black fella unless you really are. And his son is whiter than you, Aaron. <laughs> it's like, well, his son is his son Aboriginal as well. Well, what is going be. on? Yeah, it, it was strange. I'm like, is this? Well, the only thing I could think of though, and I know this because my father was involved in some um, Aboriginal groups before I was born, and my father is white as a sheet as well. But he um, got involved in this group. He was actually screwing one of the young ladies that was there. <laughs> and uh, he all of a sudden was a black fella. Right. Because he was like brought into the, <laughs> into the tribe and into the group. So yeah. I'm wondering, and I'm not, obviously I'm not saying that Stephen Strong was doing anything that's nefarious or horrible, but maybe he's been working with the Aboriginal people so much that it's like a, a respect thing. So it's like a Rachel Dolezal thing where he's... <laughs> no, I'm not saying... He's that. identifying himself well, as Aboriginal, actually, yeah, but perhaps. actually there's no genetic basis to yes. it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe May- the group has taken him in as Aboriginal. Maybe the percentage of Aboriginal DNA he has is very well, high, and at- he's making those claims claims legitimately, it's, but it's, just looking at the guy, no, it's hard to say that. Look, I know in Australia, I think uh, to claim benefits as an Aboriginal person or something like that, not that this is a good uh, marker at all, but you've got to be 16%, your your DNA has to be at least 16% uh, Aboriginal to be yeah, able yeah. to claim you know Aboriginal benefits yeah, and, yeah. and whatever else. So maybe that's you know where he's... But I actually think this is probably because he interacts with them so much and he's out on their lands... That he's probably taken himself into the, or they've taken him in to the group, which is fine. But it was is just it odd. It's misleading to say that. It was a bit misleading in a way. You're, you're saying you're another race, but yeah, you're that's not. True. Yeah, it's lying. Yeah, it was a bit. Sorry, it was a bit off-putting, I must say, because he kept on doing it, and he kept on like, "Oh, us black fellas know so much more." And I'm like, "But hang on, you're creating kind of this divide." And I wasn't sure if it's it's just weird because we've seen him speak a bunch of times. He's been on the show. And I can't remember. We have got to go back and listen because I can't remember if he did the same thing years ago. It's no, like I it don't feels it. like it's a change all of a sudden. But anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point. He's driving back with these skulls, right? And when he gets back to Sydney, as you said, he's bedridden with just the most horrific illness. Like he is just completely wiped out. For two months. I mean, he made it sound like he was pretty much on his deathbed. Well, it sounded like a, like an extreme version of chronic fatigue syndrome or something. And yeah. he pointed out that he's never been sick. He's never even had a, a serious cold. So for him to come down with this illness, it was just bizarre. It was completely yeah. strange. So he calls in some psychics and his mysterious elder friends. And an acupuncturist. And they all say the same thing. They tell him why he's been so sick for so long. They tell him that the skull is from the Pleiades. And the elders say the Pleiadians were called to Earth millions of years ago by the tree people. (laughs) We shall create tree people. (laughs) You should have actually prepared one of those. (laughs) Now, the reason uh, the Pleiadians were called in by the tree people is because they were under attack from the reptilians. Well, the reptilians apparently were already here. They'd taken over the planet. They were cutting trees down. There was pollution everywhere. Yeah. There was big problems. So I think we've actually described this story from them before, but every time we hear it, we're just like, whoa. <laughs> so basically, the tree people call them in. Uh, the reptilians see the Pleiadians arrive. The Pleiadians are like, 
okay, evil Nazi reptilians, you must stop all this hate. And the reptilians are like, yeah. And the Pleiadian ship is destroyed instantly. And a few escape pods jettison out and one escape pod lands safely in Australia and one Pleiadian survives. Now, he lives with the original people, the native Australians. They kind of take him in, but they protect him because roving bands of Gestapo reptilians are on the hunt for this one surviving Pleiadian. So essentially, the Australian Aboriginals, they hide this Pleiadian in their basement. So he becomes like a Pleiadian and Frank trying to avoid these reptilian roving bands. And the thing is... This Pleiadian and Frank that was hiding in the Aboriginal basements a million years ago was betrayed by Space Judas. By Space Judas. <laughs> well, it's not Space Judas. He was betrayed by one of the Aboriginal people. So the question is who was this Aboriginal Judas? Who was the betrayer that turned in Pleiadian and Frank to the Gestapo reptilians? Well, the elders had the answer, apparently. It was none other than Stephen Strong himself. (laughs) That's right. In a past life, in an ancient past life, Stephen Strong betrayed the Pleiadian Anne Frank and handed her in for a handful of Draco credits or something. So once Stephen came across this skull, the skull recognised him as Space Judas and then put an inferno inside his body. (laughs) He was meant to die to pay for his past life sins. I like it, though, how he kind of just fleshes over this like, and just goes, oh, well, you know, we we made good and we're all good and then I was fine. (laughs) He doesn't explain how he redeemed himself. No. I'm like, you're essentially Space Judas in a previous lifetime. Yeah. And you turned Anne Frank over to the Nazis... So at this point, he kind of just drops the mic and walks off stage and the crowd's like, oh, what's going on? And <laughs> this is where it got, it did get, I'm like, what's going on? I wrote that the old woman next to you nearly lost her dentures in a fourth glass of bourbon <laughs> by this stage. She's like, what? <laughs> and out of nowhere, we're introduced to a new speaker. We don't get any background, really. Which we don't even get a name. Well, her name's, no, her name's Leah. Yeah, but that's it. We don't get a surname. Oh, yeah. So so we can't look her up or anything. And she's a contactee. But she's wearing a suit. And I'm like, what? Oh, no. She was very presentable. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. Very attractive uh, early 20s young woman. This is what I'm saying. I'm saying she's wearing a suit. She's all kind of dressed, dolled up. And so the last thing I expected to come out of her mouth (laughs) was rambling (laughs) crazy madness. So she gets up. She claims she's actually been in contact with aliens for 20 years, since she was six years old. She's contacted many beings, and she starts just listing them off. She's, I've contacted arachnids and transparent ones. I've contacted uh, the Pleiadians. I've contacted the greys. I've contacted the redskins. And I'm like, what? (laughs) See, people think you're joking, but I actually saw in your notes that you're putting in images of Native Americans. Like, great. That's great. Uh, She's made a lot of friendships along the way, she says. And through genetic and mental interfacing is what I wrote in my... Yeah, yeah. and these beings have been with her through thick and thin. So we're just like, all right, we don't know what this has to do with anything we've heard so far, but let's keep listening. But she says she's never seen them until she was shown the skulls. Yes. So So were the skulls like some type of trigger? Well, I'll get to that. She reveals the following. 
humans are not the only beings who have lived on this planet in history. Mm -hmm. ETs have been here for millions of years. And as you were just saying, she had never seen these Pleiadian beings who were called in by the tree people uh, a million years ago and blasted by the reptilians until she had seen one of the skulls. Now, she's up on stage and she says, look, after I saw the skulls, my uh, friend Mesrith, who's basically her ET boyfriend, uh, he explained to her who these Pleiadians were. Now, Mesrith is a thousand-year-old Nebosaurus. He's also non-physical. <laughs> At this stage, we're like, <laughs> what is a Nebosaurus? No one, no one asks this question. Everyone's like, all right, all right, yeah, great. Maybe, oh, the Nebosaurians. Yeah, I know them. Oh yeah, Nebosaurians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Mesrith, the thousand-year-old transparent Nebosaurus, he tells uh, this contactee Leah that he also grew up, or he grew up on the, of course, Nebosaurus homeworld. And he said these Pleiadian beings, uh, they're just from the Pleiadian system, Pleiadian system, which is where his homeworld is, they also grew up on the same planet. So they were kind of like bros. I- except he had, uh, he said that the Nebosauruses were on the plains, but the Pleiadian beings were on the hillside. So I must a, have missed that. There's a bit of um, racial segregation going on on the Nebosaurus homeworld. But all that kind of stuff starts to become more apparent through this discussion through the day as well. It was rather unusual. Oh, everything. <laughs> Dude, at this point, we were just like, okay, this is great. This is uh, this is the best content so far. Um, he basically said this: these Pleiadian beings, and I'm talking about the beings with the skull, like the large giant eyes, the crazy long arms, they went into the space. Like they became a space-faring people. They let, left the Nebosaurian homeworld, which was also their homeworld, and they spent vast amounts of time Traveling galaxies through galaxies and just being nomads, yeah, but helpful, yeah. Like they'll turn up and say, "Um, oh, reptilians, no, that's problematic. You can't do that." And, and they get blown, and blasted get out of the sky. Hmm. But she basically says, after a vast amount of time, the Pleiadian beings were like, "Meh, we don't really want to do this anymore," and they retired from space travel. They basically went to their equivalent of Florida. And that's where they've been for thousands of years. They only come out now when there's a grave danger or the tree people of some forest moon call you because the reptilians are in town. Right. So she said many past lives come from this location, though. And feelings are that the world is pessimistic and things are not as good. She's like, it's not as bad, but it's not as good. And she's then asking Mesereth who he is and what his species is. He's like, names are not important yet. Details matter not when I am telling you truth. And then she sits down. And that's it. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell has just happened? What the hell is going on? What, like, why are you even here? What relevance did that have to any of this? It's funny because, you know, Stephen had just told this insane story that in a past life he had betrayed uh, Pleiadian and Frank. Um and she's introduced as some kind of verification of this story. <laughs> I know but that he doesn't. She doesn't say anything though that has any. Yeah. So, but where I where I now understand at the point I didn't understand, but by the time we got to the end of the day, I did begin to understand what was going on. And I must say, I feel like there's an agenda now that hasn't existed before. And I don't want to speak badly of Evan and Stephen Strong because I like what they're doing. I like them going and looking. I oh, know you can stuff. speak badly about this stuff, but this stuff is just a little bit strange. So basically, what she was essentially setting up is that humanity is a huge mess at the moment. Yeah. 
and they're coming back to fix this mess. Yeah. And, and I like how we were meant to be just slightly sceptical of Stephen's story, but when she mentioned the verification from the Nebosaurus, yeah. we were meant to go, oh, okay. And then, of course, this is where, by the end of the day, huge amounts of money come in. But I'll get back to that in a moment. Because after he, uh, she sits down, Stephen comes back and he says, well, the Pleiadians, you know, we need to, to talk about them. And if we talk about the Pleiadians and this return, we need to talk about what is not only the most important site in Australia, but actually the most important site in the world. Now, we take a break for cheesecake. And <laughs> you and I take a break, Ben. And I think you and I had a snack. And uh, we come back and we sit down. Now, important part to a later end to the evening is we went to lunch and I'd never drink coffee anymore because it ruins me. Like, it just ruins my insides. <laughs> and you came and handed me a beverage. And you're like, yeah, have this. It's a lovely drink. And I'm like, oh, this is coffee. And it's the biggest cup of coffee I've ever seen. It was like two litres of coffee. With because there was five shots in it. I was so thirsty. I just smashed the whole thing. I thought, <laughs> I'll deal with the consequences later. And I'll explain the consequences at the end of the show. The pro- even when I actually ordered the coffees, because I was so... Because I haven't been sleeping because my kids would be playing up. So I was like, I was really, really tired. So I asked for the largest coffee they have. I went, oh, could you put an extra shot? That is like, it's already got five shots. I'm like, that doesn't matter. So it was five shots? Six. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. And, and I just forgot that coffee isn't so good for you anymore, but it was fine. So regardless, though, we, we go back into, uh, we go, there's obviously a new serving at the Chinese restaurant. They've changed out the Bay Marie's and there's more people in there. <laughs> and we head back upstairs, back into this uh, discussion. And we want to talk about the Standing Stone site. It's considered to be Australia's Stonehenge. And all they start talking about this man, Frederick Slater. And Slater is essentially one of the first uh, discoverers. I mean, even though it's been there for a long time, he's one of the people that started to understand uh, what the importance of this site was. Mm. But essentially, and I think they might have mentioned this site in the past. I mean, they're saying it's this very sacred location. Uh, Stephen's done two days of archaeology at this spot. But apparently they got 20 volunteers and 10 elders went into the location to try and examine it. But it had been destroyed by a farmer uh, during the Second World War. So the story goes is that the farmer had received a phone call from the government. It doesn't say which agency or department or whatever else, and said to the farmer, if you want to keep your land. So I got the interpretation or the impression, sorry, at the start that they were saying that they were going to take his land off him if he didn't destroy the site and do their dirty work. But That's no, correct. no, it wasn't that. What it was is that they were giving away land and this farmer was told, you can have this land if you destroy this site. Oh, really? So it's not really, it was kind of implied that he was being threatened to do it, but it was more, hey, if you want your land, if you want this land, you've got to destroy it. So I don't know if that makes a difference, but I just thought it was important that we discuss that. But anyway, so this farmer says to his son, Jack, okay, you have to go out there and you have to destroy this site. And that's exactly what he does. He goes out and he bulldozes this site. And so these rocks were uh, sandstone, but this was igneous country. So for these strange rocks, it means that, you know, and on, on top of that as well, this was a very different type of sandstone. They weighed tons, and there wouldn't have been a technology at the time that would have allowed them to have moved them. This is essentially Australia's Stonehenge. Absolutely. He says there's no percussion points in the rock. So they've been cut with what he says is an unknown technology. And there was 3,500 cubic metres of fill surrounding the site. And this is where all the sandstone and, and clay and everything had all been moved but he says there's zero sandstone anywhere around for miles, miles and miles and miles. So it suggests that a very advanced technology was used to develop this site. 
But anyway, so when the, the bulldozing of the site had taken place, apparently Jack, the farmer's son, had taken these rocks and had stacked them next to a dairy. And the farm was about 50 metres from the dairy and all these rocks were stacked up. And apparently the, f- the rocks disappeared. Now, no one knows what happened to those rocks, but no one could have moved them easily. It wasn't like it was something that someone could have just come along. Well, the suggestion is that the landowners, the farmers, they basically buried them somewhere to essentially cover up the evidence that they were there because they were worried about losing the land. I think the idea that there was some historic cultural site on their land and if this was discovered, the government would take it, Yes, I think is a reasonable thing to suggest. Absolutely it's like if it you find yeah. if you find some kind of native bones in your backyard, you know, they're going to well, come and. There is a, a process and procedures even today. Now, if you yeah. are um, you know working on some land and you find bones or artifacts or anything else like that, I think I'm not too sure what they call this the Aboriginal Cultural Council or something, but they will come and they will inspect the site to make sure that it's not Aboriginal remains, and which is good. I mean, you want that archaeology to be there, um, but I think there was also a bit of an impression here that the um, the only people who had the earth moving equipment was the Jacks. So unless it was them, it had to be someone else in a clandestine fashion. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Look, let's talk about the site itself, because the site truly is a fascinating location. It's apparently with the uh, the Native Australians. There's uh, We know about the Dreaming Time stories and the legends and the oral traditions, mm. but they're all regional. It's all to uh, specific tribes and regions. But this particular site is the only universal oral tradition. And so according to what Stephen was saying is that the Aboriginals actually used to take a sabbatical and for each member, uh, a member no, from each tribe. You'd pick your greatest warrior yes. and send them on a, a, a great journey. This sabbatical that would take 10 years, they'd have to get there and then they would get back, but they would go to the site and perform this ceremony at each of the mounds and kind of moving around these pyramid-shaped rocks and these tall pillars, and then they would head back to their tribe and that would be this ritual that was practiced. But all of them would come to this site and do these rituals and, you know, you can understand that it's such an important, but it goes beyond being a cultural thing. There's a suggestion here that there's some type of energy associated with this site. There's some yeah. type of uh, almost mystical power associated with it. Well, remember when Stephen was explaining he organised a bunch of researchers and colleagues to go out there and study the site, and they all flew in from Australia. And when they arrived at the site, which I'd, he hasn't really revealed where it is, but essentially he said to them, oh, I'm sorry, guys, we can't go onto the site at all. You can't step foot on the site until we get permission from the spirits. And he essentially walk, had to walk into the circle and the, one of the elders was there and said, you need to get a sign. And so a, a hawk flies over and is like, hey, and he's like, oh, that's a sign, right? And the elder's like, no, mate. Another hawk flies over. He's like, oh, that's got to be a sign. No, nope, sorry. Eventually, what was it? 12 or 12 yeah. Yeah. Uh, he flying over the, the site, s- flying around in an infinity symbol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and that was away. permission. And then the elder's like, okay, you can do it now. So <laughs> it's just like, imagine if you flew in from Perth and you arrive at this archaeological dig and the owner like, I don't says, know if you can get in today. Sorry, dude. The it's spirits, like the, the hardest nightclub in the world. It is. Yeah. You got to get permission from the spirits. So anyway, he goes, once he's gotten into this location and he's seen this site, uh, there was a lot more discussion about, and this is where he went into more of these details about how essentially there's uh, stories that the Egyptians would want to attend this site as well. And this is where the links come in between the Egyptians and why we've got things like the glyphs, the Gosford glyphs and that kind of stuff. It's not proto-Egyptian, 
what it actually is, it's Aboriginal or original Australians that taught the Egyptians. Yeah, this is the claim that Egyptians did come to Australia, but they didn't leave their culture here. They learnt from Native right. Australians. So he was saying, Stephen was saying that he uh, met with Graham Hancock and Graham Hancock and his wife, Santa, went to this sacred site, this location. And apparently, if you stand in the middle of this standing stone site and you look west, you can see three pyramids in the background. And he claims that these are, because they, they look like they're natural formations, but at one point they actually would have been pyramids that have now been oh. covered over by, you know, erosion or whatever so else. So this claim that Native Australians can't have been that advanced because there's literally no evidence of it is wrong. Is wrong. Because there's some hills that are shaped like pyramids. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> yes. And even Graham Can- Hancock apparently, according to Stephen, went, oh, I can see the pyramids. I can s- so I don't, I don't know about that. Just like the Neanderthals have running water and take hot water showers. Yeah, I mean, it could just be three <laughs> hills for God's sake. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're pyramids. Uh, and you would think, though, that, well, if there are pyramids there, why aren't there archaeological excavations going on? But yeah. then, look, Stephen says at this point, with this uh, sacred site, there's only one person in the entire country that is banned by the government from attending this site. And that is Stephen Strong. Strong. (laughs) So it's like, oh. Yeah, so this idea that the Egyptians came to Australia, I I think it's a shame that it's kind of linked in with some of this silliness because there's clearly a lot of evidence for it. And Stephen was saying there is, you know, before the 1960s, the suggestion of it wasn't considered odd at all. It was pretty much a known idea. Well, there's all little things. You know, it's like mummified children have been found in the top end, so in the Northern Territory. And this is a mummification uh, technique that was uh, being utilised in Egypt in the 23rd uh, dynasty. So, I mean, the fact that you've got the same mummification technique taking place on the opposite side of the world suggests that there's got to be a link somewhere. And isn't there oral traditions that speak about uh, these people coming and then being essentially chased off? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Stephen said that there's uh, Aboriginal oral traditions that talk about uh, the uh, Egyptians coming to Australia and the Aboriginals saying that they don't want them here and actually spearing them. Killing them all. And telling them and never to come back. Because that does that remind you of a high advanced culture or does that remind you of the Sentinelese people? Yeah, it reminds me of the Sentinelese. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, and, that, and that's the thing. So this is the problem. Oh, I shouldn't say it's a problem, um, but I, I think that we tend to... And this is where the whole speech started to go. And I think it was kind of fitting in with some of the modern hysteria that we're having at the moment. Um, and of course, you know, things need to change and we do need to become a better society. But there's a lot of madness out there. There's a, the, the both ends of the spectrum are extremely extreme. And it was really that, oh, well, the Aboriginal people are the most enlightened, beautiful, wonderful people that would mm. never do any harm to anyone and they're being attacked. Yeah, exactly. And they're being backed by... Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're, not, that they're bad people. But all I'm saying is that there's this impression that this is this massive, amazing thing, this culture that's been suppressed and it's been helped by aliens. And if we don't do something to basically save it now, we're in a lot of trouble because they're coming back. Yeah, this is what we'll go into after the break where this all comes to a point. The tip of the spear is the return of the gods. Well, there's danger at this site now. And I, I agree. I don't think this site, whatever it is, whether it's what Stephen's saying it is, or it clearly is a sacred site and it should be protected. The problem is that apparently, according to Stephen, uh, a subdivision is going in there and the two mounds that are there, that are these you know wonderful locations, 
are now actually having 465 houses built on top of them. Oh, wow. Okay. So the importance of the location uh, is beyond what we can actually comprehend. While the archaeological importance is there, there's also a psychical and energy importance in that location as well, which I'll talk about in PLUS. But when we come back from PLUS, we'll show, we'll demonstrate their claims that connect this ancient Australian stone circle to Atlantis to the return of the gods and to a strange ring that Stephen himself was wearing during the talk, a sacred ring of power. And if you thought Pleiadian and Frank was weird, wait until you hear what's coming up after the break in PLUS. Now, I will link to their work in the show notes. And again, I feel like we come to this place every time we cover their work. We end up with the same conclusion that they're fantastic at gathering together uh, not obscure but research that's uh, academic research that's controversial mm-hmm. that's outside of you know the average mainstream reader's perception and they gather it together and they show what it means in you know, a really ex- clear and concise way as well yeah for example all the uh, genetic work on uh, showing how out of Africa is being questioned uh, seriously now all that is fantastic work I think they communicate this really well. Uh, the skulls they have are really interesting. Like if they are actual accurate recreations of real things they have, then they need to be studied seriously. Absolutely. And they need to be, you know, fit somewhere into the hierarchy as to what we understand about fossil records. Some of the artifacts they have made out of metals that shouldn't have been able to be worked on. That's right, alloys that shouldn't exist. In Australia, you know, thousands of years ago. And all that stuff is really fascinating. The evidence of Egyptian cultures making it to Australia. Again, it's it's really important and they they communicate it so well. But again, every time we talk about the Strongs, we end up with insane stories of Pleiadian spaceships, reptilians, tree people. Pleiadian cross-dressing. Freaking Nebosauruses. Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. great. Like, I and actually, I love it. I, I love that part of it. No. I, it's entertaining, but... <laughs> I, I love it as well. But I, and this is the thing, I love the entertainment side, but I, part of me, I just see, you know, the, the compelling argument they put forward, as you said, Ben, with all this evidence and all these details. I just go, this is incredible. Like, this, no wonder these guys are being attacked by the government and are being shot down. But then when they have a woman stand up and says she hangs out with a guy called Mesrith, who is a Nebusaurian, who's a thousand years old... It just go, it completely throws a. If any mainstream person, scientist, whatever else, was to sit down there, yeah. the moment that that woman got up and they went, oh, by the way, I was a space Judas in a previous lifetime, it completely just destroys their argument in front of uh, the scientific community. So they're not going to turn around and accept this stuff. And yeah. I think it's doing damage to them. It is damaging. Yeah, it is damaging, especially if you've got all these important finds that need to be taken seriously. And then in the other breath, you know, you're talking about all the insane stuff we just mentioned, and the even more insane stuff coming up in our Plus extension, you'll realise that it's it's not helping their cause. It's not helping their case. And they want over $4 million to restore this st- Aboriginal stone circle. Yes, which I will get into in the Plus extension as well. It's uh, I can see to a point why they need that level of money, but not, mm. not that kind of money. <laughs> Where's the chorus? This is the best part. Actually, I think I had this on, I created a loop where this just plays for like an hour. That, just that loop. Yeah, I just have that looped. It's 
Sometimes I'll just play it in the studio to piss off Aaron. Yes, I know you do. (laughs) The treaty lip. You can find uh, Stephen and Evan Strong at ForgottenOrigin.com. They've got their latest book there, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Oh, and also in the plus extension, find out why all CEOs are going to be obliterated. That's right. Find out why the gods are returning and what will happen to you if you're a CEO and you're not an ally of the right people you will be uh, obliterated by the space people. That's coming up on our Plus Extension, along with the uh, the ant- with the cousins of the Burbalangs. Yes. Do yes. they disembowel as well? No, they don't. They're far more kinder, apparently, but they still snatch children. Okay. <laughs> they're much better. So they're, not, they're not great, <laughs> all right? It's not brilliant. They won't disembowel you, but they will steal your baby. That's coming up in our Plus Extension for our last uh, extension of... Season 21, you can find that at mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there. You get the big extensions at the end of these shows every single week. And you get an entirely exclusive season of plus shows that come out on Tuesdays. Mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. Nine bucks a month. Help support your favourite show. You know the drill. You also get a high bitrate feed, blah, blah, blah. Discounts on the blah. I don't care. Yeah, but we need to move. <laughs> it's like this office is a complete mess. Like just, just sign up and just let us move. Just sign up so we can pay for our incredibly expensive shipping container oh, studio. That's been painful. That really has been hard. <laughs> but we do it so that we, you guys can hear us so we don't have noises coming through. Oh, it's going to be great when we get in there. And again, just a reminder that we're taking a week off for our mid-year break. We'll be back with Plus on July the 2nd, but we'll be back with our regular MU show on Friday on July the 5th. That's a wrap for this show. If you're a free listener, if you're on Plus, stick around for the amazing Ring of Power after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Plus extension. Great to have you with us.